0: Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value.
1: The race to value, we must recognize that quality of life is the ultimate currency of healthcare. And this aim is all the more important in senior living facilities. Transforming health outcomes for skilled nursing and senior living populations is not just a goal, it's a commitment to providing the care and dignity our elders deserve. This week on the race to value, I am so excited to bring to you Mark Price. CEO of Curana Health. Mark has significant experience in senior leadership roles for healthcare organizations focused on value-based care. And his company, Curana Health, is a provider of value-based primary care services exclusively for senior living populations that live in nursing homes and assistant independent living facilities, CCRC and life plan communities, and affordable senior housing communities. Uh, They're serving 1,100 senior community partners across 30 states. They participate in the MSSP ACO, ACO Reach, and Medicare Advantage programs. They've been successful in fundraising uh, upwards of $300 million in VC funding. This organization is disrupting care delivery as we know it in the senior living space. They're doing it on a meaningful scale through innovative care models and applied analytics. You know, Mark and I had a great discussion about what they're doing to transform health outcomes for skilled nursing and senior living populations. We talk about their MSSP and ACO reach and Medicare Advantage results, do a deep dive on their technology. We talk about palliative care. And we also have a very thoughtful discussion on the state of the nursing home industry and this inevitable shift to home-based care delivery and what that means for the future. Overall, this was a a great discussion in this movement to value-based care. Kirana Health is doing the great work and it's been a pleasure connecting with Mark and it's an honor to share him with you. So without further delay, let's now hear from Mark Price as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Mark, welcome to the Race to Value. It is incredible to have you on this week to talk about the great work that you're doing there at Curana Health. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Well, let's begin our conversation today talking about the opportunity that we have here in value transformation to provide an integrated model of care to better serve senior living residents. There's an estimated 27 million people that are aging into the 75 plus cohort through 2050. It's going to result in rising age, higher acuity levels. Residents are going to be moving into senior living at an accelerated pace. And, you know, with this in mind, I know Curana Health has a approach to value-based care that's different than the conventional risk-bearing entities. You provide services exclusively for the senior living industry, including nursing homes, assisted and independent living facilities, memory care, continued care, retirement communities, affordable senior housing communities. Your 750 plus providers are serving more than 1,100 senior living community partners across 30 states. The foundation of Kirana Health's business model is its participation in the MSSP ACO, ACO Reach, and value based Medicare Advantage programs. You've had outstanding success in dramatically improving the quality and cost of healthcare that are delivered to residents of these senior living facilities. By making real-time medical consultation available to residents and their families, you're showing how this engagement can lead to increased patient satisfaction and reduced unnecessary hospitalizations. As I understand, you've achieved a 39% reduction in 30-day hospital readmissions, a 37% reduction in total hospital admissions among your Medicare Advantage ISNIP members. The mission of your company is superlative. I mean, you're really there to improve the health, happiness, and dignity of senior living residents. You have a high-touch care model that achieves that by providing immediate access to a clinician where a resident doesn't have to leave their home. So, Mark, I wanted to see if you could describe your perspective on this important opportunity for value transformation in this senior living environment. Can you describe the operational thesis for Kirana Health and serving senior living populations and how that differs from many of the physician-led and health system led ACOs that predominate the landscape?
0: Yeah, Eric, well, first of all, I appreciate the summary of what we're doing. You you covered it incredibly well, incredibly well. And to your question about, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it, you know, obviously very well, there's many, many places that value-based care can work in American healthcare. Many places that it is working today and hopefully many more places that it'll grow and thrive in the future. And, you know, I have people ask me all the time about doing value-based care in this one subsector or this other space. And I guess you know my, my philosophy on that is that there's many places value-based care can work. The important thing is that if you're going to be starting a company that's focused on value-based care, the people that are leading the company need to have an extreme amount of passion for making it work in that unique space that you're going to be working in. Um, And I I think that that's kind of probably the biggest thing you need is you need a team of people, in particular, a team of clinical leaders that are really passionate about whatever space you happen to be working in. And and that's what we have at Curana Health. We have a, a team of people that are incredibly passionate about improving the health, happiness and dignity of senior living residents around the country. And, you know, you mentioned that our mission statement that that really started with a group of us years ago having a conversation about what kind of healthcare experience do we want for our own family members as they start to approach the final years of their life and this is a group of us that you know all of us have had people that have in our family that have that have gone through the end of life experience and um and we had a conversation about that and and for us the answer to that question is you know for our own family we want a healthcare experience that brings them as much health happiness and dignity uh, in their final years of life as possible and if that's what we want for our own family, then let's try to build a company that delivers that many people around the country as we possibly can. Um, and then from there, we said, if we're doing this in the kind of, you know, people in kind of the, as they approach the final years of their life, a lot of different ways we could do that. But for a variety of reasons, you know, we thought that starting within the senior living, skilled nursing, affordable housing space would be the right place to start, that we could start there and, and really build something special. And so that's, that's kind of been the genesis of what we've been focused on is this is an area that we're passionate about. It's an area that we feel strongly we can make a difference, that there's a better way to provide care, a better set of outcomes and experience that we can provide to the patients we take care of and, and also to the clinicians that provide care to them as well. And so that's that's kind of really what, what has been behind our, our focus on this you know, really unique subsector of American healthcare, which is again, sort of the final years of life and uh, in a particular final years of life for those people that that reside in senior living. And, and by the way, you know, just a quick point, I'll put in, point out there, Eric, you mentioned the baby boomer generation now starting to approach kind of getting to mid late seventies and, and eventually will be into the eighties. So the majority of Americans, as they approach the final years of their life, the majority of Americans will spend some period of time in senior living or skilled nursing. Uh, so not all, but a majority of Americans as they approach the final years of their life uh, will spend some period of time in, in one of those settings. And so again, you know, we're really kind of focused on how do we provide a better experience of healthcare in those final years and, and doing it in senior living.
1: Well, Mark, it's an outstanding mission. The results you're getting are really encouraging and the passion bleeds through and everything that that you do. Uh, you know, certainly in talking with you. And I've also had the opportunity over the years to get to know the uh, chairperson of the elite patient care aco dr tony gamboa he's a friend of mine he's someone that i know is very passionate about this work i'm excited that he made this connection and i'm excited about the results that you're getting with that particular aco i mean i'd be remiss if i didn't congratulate you on the phenomenal mssp shared savings uh, that uh, that were achieved uh, last performance year you know elite patient care aco performed in the top 1% of Accountable Care Organizations in its first year of operation, you achieved a PBPY savings amount of $2,235. I mean, that's the highest for any first-year MSSP ACO since 2012. And this ACO is in a trailblazing space because it's waking up an ecosystem that previously didn't have the alignment of financial incentives to care about patient outcomes. I mean, ad- additionally, these are very complex patients with intensive care needs. I mean, I remember when I was leading a physician-led ACO on the primary care side, and, you know, we did everything in our power to ensure that high need populations and SNFs were not attributed to to our ACO population because they would hurt our benchmark. Yet, you know, your ACOs have an entirely different approach by taking on accountability for patients and senior living facilities. So, Mark, I wanted to see if you could provide some insight into the key strategies and initiatives that led to Elite Patient Care ACO's remarkable success within the MSSP in its very first year of operation? And you know what are the core principles and practices that contributed to those results, especially when dealing with complex and high-need patient populations? Yeah. So, Eric,
0: you mentioned we had a historically strong results in MSSP ACO. Uh, we were also one of the top performing ACO reach organizations uh, last year. And then we've had really amazing results in the Medicare Advantage program with iSNPs uh, and C SNPs as well. And, you know, the way that I think about it is our core business is not any payment model. Our core business is a clinical model and a clinical model that produces better health outcomes for the patients we take care of. And as part of achieving those better health outcomes, we have better affordability as well, largely because we uh, have a very, very significant reduction in um, unnecessary hospital admissions, as as you mentioned earlier. Um, but really, that's that's who we are, is the clinical model. Everything else is just how do we attach different payment models so that we're able to capture sh- some share of the value that we're creating for the American healthcare system and and use that value to... Uh, reinvest in what we're doing and also provide some of that value to the communities that we're in so they can reinvest in their own missions as well. But again, everything else is just, those are all just payment models to kind of capture um, some of the value that's being created from the clinical model. And um, you mentioned Dr. Dr. Gamboa and Dr. Gamboa is one of many fantastic clinical leaders that we have in our organization that have developed a, a model of care Which is unique for this patient population, certainly from a clinical standpoint, but also in the way that we integrate and collaborate with the staff of the buildings that we're in, because you know, we we play a role, obviously, as the as the physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, RNs, you know, the the clinical care that we provide. But of course, these people are all living in buildings where they're surrounded 24/7 by the staff of the building. And so the model we've built is. It's going to have principles that you know eric you've seen talking to people in other settings doing value-based care so there's you know a lot of sort of risk stratification and then defining visit frequency and a team-based approach and you know really getting to understand our patients on a detailed level so there's all those things that you're going to see in other models you you've looked at outside of the senior living space but then probably what's unique about us is we've modified everything to say okay how do we do this And we're coming in and ultimately working in a senior living building where we don't own the building, we're coming in and working with other people's staff. And, and there's a role for our clinicians, but there's also a huge role for the staff of the building that we're in. And so how do we integrate everything clinically, operationally, technology, workflows, um, so that it's as seamless as possible, sort of where does the work our team is doing and, and where does the work that the uh, the community that we're in where does sort of one start? One, where does one end, and where does the other one start? And so that's probably a, just a big part of what we've done is that, you know, this space is just so different than any other part of American healthcare, and we've spent years, years now, really building a model which is just so unique and so designed to be integrated into this very, very unique ecosystem of American healthcare, which is senior living and skilled nursing.
1: Well, Mark, earlier you mentioned Snips and ACO REACH, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Medicare Advantage is increasingly more common as a way for SNIPS to have a seat at the table in value-based care. And there's these specialized Medicare Advantage offerings known as Snips. or you know, for our listeners out there, these are institutional special needs plans that are designed to meet the needs of people living in long-term care facilities, such as long-term nursing facilities, uh, SNFs, inpatients, psychiatric facilities. There's upwards of 200 ICENIT plans in Medicare Advantage. They serve up to 100,000 members. Medicare Advantage, including these ICENIT plans, they were highly influential in the design of the new ACO REACH model for traditional Medicare beneficiaries. So you have Medicare Advantage and uh, then you have these traditional uh, uh, Medicare beneficiaries. You serve them in MSSP, but also ACO reach. And you know a lot of our listeners out there are, are uh, looking into ACO reach. They're participating in this new payment model. It you know, operates with the same levers as Medicare Advantage. It uses prospective capitated payment for professional or, or global risk it appeals to nursing homes as i understand that can really deepen their clinical capabilities i mean that's the motive behind iSNPs and value based models of care so you know mark i wanted to see if you could explain you know how medicare advantage and aco reach are positioned in your value based portfolio and what's what's the potential of those programs to build a bridge from m s s p to better serve patients with complex needs in senior living communities
0: so eric to your point we we operate
1: Medicare Advantage,
0: ISNPs um, in a number of places in the country. And actually, in many cases, we do that where the facilities that we're in actually have ownership in the plans as well, which is pretty cool. So the facilities actually become owners of, of Medicare Advantage plans that are designed for senior living and, and uh, skilled nursing residents. And so and, and those have been very, very successful. And so, uh, again, we, we operate those. And really, you can think of an ISNP. Institutional special needs plan. It's really a, it's a Medicare Advantage plan, so it's a subset of the Medicare Advantage program. But it's a Medicare Advantage plan, which is entirely designed for residents of a, a institutional care setting. Um, and so, again, it's just it's a subset of the Medicare Advantage program, but plans that are designed specifically for uh, this population that needs you know needs a uh, a high degree of care, uh, institutional level of care, and so. Again, we you know we've operated those throughout the country and and, and had good results. And you know Eric, kind of the way, the way that I think about it is that it, kind of getting back to what I said before, our core kind of the, the heart of our organization is really a, a clinical model that delivers results, and everything else is just around. And then how do we actually, you know, if we're delivering these great results, how do we also kind of align the overall healthcare payment model to a payment model based on outcomes as opposed to volume of services and and so we we view both medicare advantage as well as the original medicare programs as we want we want to have a presence in both because every building we come into there's some people that are on medicare advantage and there's some people that are on original medicare um, that's you know the case some buildings are more on one side or the other but every building's going to have some of both and so we, we you know we want to have strategies for both you know on the medicare advantage side again we you know we we operate plans and in some cases we partner with external Medicare Advantage plans. And then on the original Medicare side, we have both MSSP and ACO REACH. I get asked all the time, I guess all the time about the differences between MSSP ACO to ACO REACH to Medicare Advantage. And there are are very, very big differences. There's very, very big differences, but the one commonality in all of the programs is if you're providing a higher quality of care, you're achieving great quality metrics, and you're also driving better affordability by reducing unnecessary hospitalizations, then you're going to do well in any of the programs. And that's kind of the commonality across all of them is that it's ultimately about better better quality scores and then reducing unnecessary hospital admissions. And so really in all three of those programs, we can do well. You know, MSSP ACO and ACO REACH, both of those are for the original Medicare beneficiaries. And so you know, right now we have certain states that were in MSSP ACO, other states that were in ACO Reach. We kind of like having a foot in both programs so that we can continue to evaluate both programs as they evolve. And there's this value in having a presence in both programs, and um, and we'll continue to sort of evolve, you know evaluate that over time, MSSP versus ACO Reach. But as of right now, we really think there's value in having a presence in both, being able to learn in both. And again, there are some. Some differences in them, and and being able to kind of learn learn from both those programs. But all of those programs are good, and you know, and and it's it's nice as well. CMS and CMMI have really been recently adding some nice innovations to these programs that we're really excited about. And so, just as an example, ACO reach to a large degree, and then MSSP to a lesser degree. We can do things like allow the facilities that we're in to provide skilled services to their residents without needing a qualifying uh, three-day stay hospital admission beforehand if they're in our ACO region, in some cases, if they're in the MSSP ACO. And what's beautiful about that is that historically, they couldn't provide skilled level of care until after hospitalization. Now, we can actually, whether it's Medicare Advantage or ACO reach, and to a lesser extent, MSSP, we can actually say, hey, this patient could benefit from skilled care to avoid a hospitalization as opposed to you know getting it after a hospitalization and so we're able to, to really have some some pretty powerful clinical level levers that we can pull there. So again all, all of these programs each one is different but the one commonality is all of them provide new services you can provide to the residents and and ultimately enable everybody involved in providing care not just us but the facilities as well to be focused on outcomes and and to be less focused on individual Services and more just to be focused on the big picture and doing the right thing at the right time for the right
1: patient. Well, Mark, you again have had great results in MSSP and ACO reach and Medicare Advantage. And, you know, we've talked about the the cost and utilization, the quality. You've also had a 96% satisfaction rate that reflects a outstanding patient experience. Uh, you, you've really been able to build this high-touch integrated care model to serve these residents in these senior living communities. And as I understand, uh, you've been able to underpin that with technology enablement. You know, it's enhanced the communication and clinical decision-making of your network's care teams to enhance health outcomes with a really high-risk population – You've partnered with innovacer to establish a technology environment that can unify patient records, share care plans, maintain continuity of care across all settings and value-based care contracts as the company's growing. And you've also partnered with Netsmart to enhance care coordination and care delivery. And leveraging technology in this way is so critical to enhance care access, quality outcomes for high-risk populations. And you know many of our leaders – out there that are listening you know, to this interview. I mean, they're continuing to struggle and extracting the full benefit of technology. I mean, they're trying to figure out how best to consolidate patient records across various systems and automate care management and enable remote patient monitoring and identify high-risk patients with AI and deploy SDOH interventions and optimize processes to close care gaps. So Mark, I wanted to see if you could discuss the evolution of your technology ecosystem at Curana Health. I mean, how do you powerful data analytics and technology combined with your outstanding clinical team, high-touch personalized care model, and value-based contract portfolio to drive efficiencies and improved outcomes? Yeah.
0: So, Eric, we've tried to be incredibly intentional about ensuring that everything that we build from a technology standpoint uh, is something that our our physicians and nurse practitioners are, are asking for. And- that it's going to be highly valuable for them. And, and and the reason I start there is because I think over the last five or 10 years, there's been a number of healthcare companies that get so caught up in announcements around technology and and talking about their technology that, you know, sometimes it, it feels a little bit like technology for technology's sake, as opposed to technology that's, that's really driving a, a material clinical outcome, which is better than what can be achieved with, uh, you know, with commercial products that are already out there. And so we've really, really tried to be intentional. And, and with our technology needs, I think of things in three buckets as we think about our technology strategy. So bucket number one are, what are activities that we want to do really, really well, but our need is very similar to other healthcare organizations that are out there. So think about, you know, when we're operating health plans, the way that we pay claims, we're not trying to pay a claim in a way that's any different than anybody else. There's many other examples like that. So things that we need to do well, but we need to do them well in a way that's substantially similar to the way that people do. So that's kind of bucket number one. Uh, Bucket number two is what are things that, that are truly, truly unique to us, that there are, you know, either no or very few healthcare organizations that have a need, which is uh, the same as our need. And so, you know, that bucket would be a lot of our analytics that we provide to our providers, because there's not many other large scale medical groups that are focused on this unique specific patient population. So the way we think about quality metrics and all the different sort of tools and and things that we're putting in front of our providers, it really is unique. A lot of the data and alerts and, um, and suggestions and so forth really are unique to us. And so that's one that's really unique. And then Bucket number three is kind of somewhere in between where uh, there's some degree of similarity, some degree of difference between us and others. And, and, and the reason I start with that framework is you know, that first bucket of our needs are similar to others. We really just look for best in class external. Bucket number two is where we look to build something either ourselves or in partnership with others. And then bucket number three, where our needs are somewhat similar, somewhat different, that's where we look to find something commercial and then just customize it for what's unique to us. And And again, I start there because again, you know, we are not trying to do anything technology for technology's sake. We're not in the business of selling technology. We're in the business of, you know, producing great clinical outcomes. And so we just, we try to always be really, really intentional about, you know, this is who we are. Let's understand who we are and not, you know, try to say that we're something beyond that. And let's, let's build technology that, that really supports our mission and supports our providers. And so with that kind of backdrop, you know, you you covered it well. So we've got some great partnerships with companies like NetSmart, like uh, innovacer uh, like Cognizant QNEX that we're using a lot of their technology. In most of those cases, there's things that they customize for us because our needs are unique. And then in other places, we're, we're building our own things as well, our own dashboards and analytics that, that are just, we're just so unique in some respects that, that, that those are kind of the very specialized places where we have to build. And and then, you know, everything we, we design and build, we try to make sure that it's that it's built in sort of high collaboration with our clinical model, with our operational model, with the training that we provide, because we, you know, we we develop our own CME and other training because, again, the space we're in is just such a unique subsector of American healthcare that we develop a lot of our own training for our providers and for our staff. And so, again, everything we do, it's it's really, you know, again, that's probably the biggest thing I'd say. It's never technology for technology's sake or technology that we're trying to sell externally. It's all about what are the clinical and operational problems that we're trying to solve. And then let's be incredibly intentional about finding, if possible, external technology solutions that can solve it. And when we can't find external ones, let's work with a partner to customize or in rare cases, we'll just, we'll build it ourselves if we have to do it. So that's, that's kind of a little bit of our, a little bit of our technology philosophy.
1: Well, Mark, thanks for that overview. And, you know, there's something else I wanted to ask you in relation to the mission of the company, you know, to improve health, happiness, and, and dignity of senior living residents. Uh, you know, it seems like it, there's an opportunity for the conventional, you know, allopathic health system that's very focused on treatment intensity and, and, and curative care. To, to run in opposition to that quality of life and achieving health and happiness uh, in your senior years. I mean, there's uh, two unfixables in life, you know, aging and dying. And it seems like we often don't know how to have an honest conversation about that. And, you know, the medical industrial complex sometimes imposes um, therapies on terminally ill patients that, you know, will shorten life or increase suffering it really comes down to the question, you know, instead of how can I prevent death? It's more about asking, you know, the patient, how do you want to live? And, and, you know, and thinking about palliative care and serious illness care as a way to open up a conversation to improve quality of life. And, you know, I was looking at a a survey recently uh, that was conducted by Levitt Partners and Nacos and you know it said that only about 10% of ACOs select palliative care as a top priority in their population health model so i wanted to just ask you you know is, is there anything you guys are doing to provide more widespread adoption of uh, palliative care Yeah, you know, i'd love to hear more about your thoughts about advanced care planning and and having these important conversations with those that are you know aging and and improving quality of life through recognition that uh, you know, life is only temporary, and, and and how can we best work together in terms of the healthcare ecosystem to support someone in their uh, end of life scenario?
0: Yeah, so we're we're definitely in that ten percent category that you mentioned. Where palliative is a big part of of what we do. Uh, you know, with with the patient population that we take care of, um, that's a that's just that's a very important part of of where our patients are in their life's journey, and you know, with our care model. A core part of that care model is starting by really understanding what matters to each of the patients that we take care of. And perhaps that'd be important in any care model, any setting, but particularly with the patient population that we're taking care of, that's just incredibly important place to start is, you know, what are they looking looking to get out of their life at this point? And how do we as a clinical team help enable that uh, and help empower them to get uh, we'll get what they're seeking at this point in their life. And you know the reality is for the people we take care of that answer, there's a lot of different answers, a lot of different answers to that question. but you can't we can't help our patients achieve that unless we start by really understanding what matters to them at this stage in their life. And so we start there, you know, palliative is an important part of what we do. Uh, you know, and and Eric, right now we're sort of in a in a place where we're trying different palliative, We know in all cases it's important. Right now, we're in a place of trying some different approaches to palliative. And so in certain parts of the country, it's our primary care providers that also do the palliative work. So that's what we're doing in certain parts of the country. Other parts of the country, we have dedicated providers that that's all they do is palliative and the primary care doesn't need to do that work. And so certain places, we have a separate group. And then in other parts of the country, we have a third model where we partner with external groups to do the palliative care for us. And so we're looking at all three of those. Um, you know, my background is I, I, I started my career as an engineer, so I'm, I'm very big on sort of trying different things and then looking at the data, seeing what the data tells us is the best way uh, to move forward. And then, and then we try to implement that more broadly. Um, but right now, you know, we know palliative is very important, including advanced care planning discussions um, to your comment on that. We know that's an important thing for people at this point in their life. Um, and so we are, again, we're kind of trying three different approaches, whether it's the primary care providers also doing palliative, whether it's palliative providers that are part of employed by us that are supplementing the primary care, or whether it's we partner with um, external organizations who, who do that work. But, but again, we know that, you know, for this population, the health outcomes are important, but it's also important that, that they're as comfortable and happy as they possibly can be. Um, at this stage in their life as well, and so the, the palliative piece. There, there's no doubt that's an important thing for for our patient population. And and by the way, you know, I would add as well. There's you know, if I if I think about stretching beyond kind of traditional primary care, you know, palliative is a big thing for us. Psychiatry and behavioral health is a big thing for for us and for our population. There's there's a handful of other areas like that where we're really you know, focused on let's find the right partners and in parts of the country where we can't find the right partners, you know, we'll, if we need to, we'll, we'll employ those areas ourselves as well. But there's a handful of areas adjacent to primary care that are just particularly important to this population and that, and that we know it's just a big, you know, it's a big part of what we need to, uh, to achieve success, whether we do it ourselves or whether we partner with others.
1: Well, Mark, I also wanted to get your take on the challenges facing the senior living industry. I mean, senior housing was hit hard by COVID-19 with high mortality staff turnover and related occupancy and this traditional fee-for-service world that we're in, you know, it was under immense pressure during that time uh, due to its focus on volume over quality. And, you know, that certainly paved the way for a company like yours. And, you know, during the early phases of the pandemic, you know government funding and waivers and extensions from lenders you know propped up struggling healthcare providers but those resources and flexibilities are now gone and there's more pressure on cash flow i mean the pressure is especially intense on skilled nursing and senior living facilities many nursing home providers are operating on thin margins they've been squeezed tighter and tighter as they're dealing with a, a you know a struggling with occupancy you know there was a survey by the National Center for Assisted Living which represents 14,000 of these long-term care facilities and they reported that 61% of their members were capping admissions because of staffing concerns and you know uh, high costs and labor, rising interest rates, looming federal staffing minimums are prompting more nursing homes and senior living operators to file for bankruptcy and you know since the pandemic We've seen more than 300 nursing homes closed due to low occupancy rates and in added cost of the pandemic and staffing shortages. I mean, uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcies right now among nursing homes and senior living operators are you know expected to increase more and more and don't really show any signs of abating going into next year and. It seems like it, you know the pandemic was you know a really big blow for the industry, and more than two hundred thousand nursing home residents uh, died from the, the virus, which is terrible. Um, and that's also because of that. You know, there's a lot more increased scrutiny from federal regulators, and so it's just a perfect storm in terms of margin deterioration and rising interest rates, and you know scrutiny and in uh, regulation that's really making it hard for these nursing homes to access credit. So Mark, I just wanted to see if you could just provide your perspective on the uh, the troubled nursing home industry right now and in the storm uh, that we're in, is there an opportunity for value-based care disruption to create a more sustainable uh, path forward?
0: Yeah, Eric, you you summarized it well. you know I spend a significant part of my time each week uh, speaking with our uh, our facility community partners around the country. And it's been a really, really tough last few years for them. And so there's kind of been, you know, four things in succession that have hit the industry very hard. Number one was obviously the pandemic. Um, and for everyone in this space who, you know, working in skilled nursing or senior living during the pandemic, um, it was a massively difficult time, certainly financially, but, but much more than that, it was difficult on a human level um, with uh, with what they with what they went through, you know, you mentioned the number of deaths in the space and the toll that takes on people, uh, and then even just you know the physical toll of I don't know how many of your listeners have spent twelve hours a day for days in a row wearing n ninety-five mask, but you know even the physical toll on top of you know just the massive human emotional toll of working in uh, working in these settings during the pandemic, really really challenging time. So the pandemic was an incredibly challenging time, and. Just as people felt like starting to emerge from that, you know, you have a, a real workforce challenge where the availability and and cost of um, of staff willing to work in these buildings and credentialed and having the appropriate training to work in these buildings uh, became hard to find. And so, you know, you went from sort of the pandemic into a real workforce challenge. And this is a staff heavy business, senior living and skilled nursing. And, um, and again, as I mentioned before, you know, there's a physical uh, aspect to the work, but there's a real emotional aspect to the work as well that, you know, finding the right people that, that are passionate and and compassionate and want to work in those settings um, has become more challenging. So you, so you kind of went from pandemic to then workforce challenge, and then you had the rising interest rates. And, you know, for many of these buildings they they do have material not all of them but many of them do have material debt funding for their buildings and so you know think of it as it's like owning a home where you kind of put down a down payment and then you use you know you use your mortgage for the rest of it with these buildings it's similar that a lot of them have debt on the buildings but a big difference is unlike a 30 year fixed rate mortgage that a lot of us have on our houses a lot of these buildings have variable interest rates where their 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 payments go up and down Um, based on what happens to uh, national interest rates. And so as interest rates have gone up, the amount they have to pay every month on their loans has gone up. So that's been kind of the third big thing that's it. And then you know the fourth thing that is coming for skilled nursing, not for senior living, so not for assisted living, not for uh, independent living, memory care, some of those settings, but skilled nursing specifically is uh, the CMS proposed uh, staffing mandates. So sort of a fourth thing that that could have an impact on the industry. And so Eric, you put it very well. I mean, the the, the industry is in a, is in a period of, of challenge right now, and they're in this period of challenge at the same time that what you covered at the top of the call, uh, the top of this podcast is occurring, which is everybody knows that the baby boomer, boomer generation is about to age into the age demographic that is the typical age demographic of senior living and skilled nursing. And so you're going to have a more than doubling of the population above the age of 80 years old over the next 20 years. And you have that at the same time that there's all sorts of differences for this baby boomer generation than generations that occurred before. They're less likely to, they're more likely to be living alone. They're less likely to have children that live in the same city as them that are kind of natural caretakers for them. So everybody knows this sort of, you know, this need is coming at the same time that the industry has faced just massive, massive challenges and headwinds, particularly on skilled nursing. Senior living is a little bit different, but particularly in, 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 in skilled nursing. And so um, I do think, you know, to your, to your point, it's an industry that could benefit from a reimagining of the way that the business model works. And value-based care is a way to reimagine how the business model can work. And to migrate to, you don't have to keep doing more with less. But let's think about things in different ways. And if we're able to achieve better outcomes for for our patients, for for the residents of these buildings, um, there can be, you know, there can be revenue streams associated with that 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 can help mitigate some of the challenges that are occurring. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say this is a silver bullet for the industry, but I do think, I absolutely do think that it is part of the solution, um, and you know, as we have conversations, what we've seen is that the interest level in what we're doing has picked up dramatically. It's picked up dramatically where, you know, we're being asked to speak at, you know, many conferences around the country, senior living conferences around the country. Um, People want to learn about our model. We're always happy to talk about it, Um, you know, so, you know, whether it's, whether they're working with us or whether they're, you know, looking to do it on their own or work with somebody else, um, we're big believers in uh in value-based care. And so we're I always tell people, look, I'm, even if you're not working with us, I'm happy to, you know, talk with you and and uh and share what we're doing. And so yeah, I, I do think it I do think it is likely to be part of the solution to and again it's not it's not a silver bullet, but I do think that it is, you know, is is part of the solution to uh to some of the changes that are that are occurring in the industry and and the need for organizations really to to understand that the old way of doing business is unlikely to be successful for them. You know, Eric, here's the other thing I think actually, for what it's worth that that's occurring in the space right now, that's driving more interest in value-based care is that I think for a period of time, skilled nursing and senior living tried to ignore the growth of managed care and the growth of ACOs and value-based care. And, And there was a variety of reasons that, um, Maybe ignore is not the right word, but they they sought to minimize the impact of that because they saw that in many of those programs, uh, senior living and skilled nursing was not included at the table in the design. They were some of those programs were were negative to skilled nursing and they were not had to see the table. I think that what's occurred is that people now see that over half of Medicare beneficiaries in the country are in Medicare Advantage, and beyond that, CMS has you know, talked about by 2030, wanting to have all Medicare beneficiaries into a value-based care program, whether that's Medicare Advantage or an ACO program or or something else. And so I think there's a realization from the industry that this is all coming, no matter what. And and if all of their residents are going to be part of a value-based care program, it's no longer a question of, you know, do they want their residents to be in a value-based care program? Because they all will be at some point. The question is: Do they want it to be a value-based care program that somebody else is running outside of their building, who has no connection to them, or do they want it to be a value-based care program that puts the senior living and skilled nursing community at the center of designing the program um, and of benefiting from, you know, from from what occurs with the program? And I and I, I kind of think that's that's probably a big change that we've seen as well. Is that you know there's an understanding? Okay, this is coming one way or another. And so the choice is really just do we want to be part of it or do we want other people to dictate kind of how this works, including for the residents of our own buildings. And so I think for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, you're you're gonna see more more adoption. But at the same time, I think, you know, Eric, you covered it incredibly well. This is a, this is a tough industry, it's a tough space, tough for the communities. Certainly what we do as our organization, really hard work. Really, really hard work. And we've learned a lot over the last few years. We've uh, we've made mistakes. um we've done some things right as well. Um, but it's a tough space. it's a tough space and and I think the future requires thinking about things in a different way than uh, than the past.
1: Well, Mark, that's well stated, and yeah, I couldn't agree more. value-based care appears to be an opportunity. It's not the silver bullet. And you know, of course, uh, as we prepare for the future, we have to think differently and reimagine our our care delivery model. And you know that being said, there is one other industry shift that I wanted to get your take on as well you know it's been projected that home care volumes are going to rocket by 20% over the next 10 years while inpatient hospital volumes are set to increase by only 2% in the same time frame and yeah there's been an estimate by McKinsey that up to 265 billion dollars worth of care that's currently delivered in traditional facilities for Medicare fee-for-service and MA beneficiaries, could shift to the home by 2025, which is right around the corner. And you know, it seems like we have this convergence of forces that's accelerating this uh, uh, trend to home-based care. I mean, you know, during the pandemic. Uh, We saw demand for post-acute care facilities evaporate, you know, due to consumers' concerns with safety and quality, you know, rapid uh, provider and consumer adoption of digital tools for coordination, monitoring, virtual care, also have facilitated remarkable shifts to, you know, virtual and home-based care. And additionally, we're seeing extreme staffing shortages, which you talked about earlier, and ballooning labor costs, which compound the cost and quality challenges, among traditional post-acute care providers. And on the hospital front, you know, we, we've talked to several uh, leaders on our podcast, how they're thinking about pivoting towards an asset light model of care with capacity weighted towards more intensive patient management in the home or, or even hospital at home. And, you know, you couple that with an aging baby boomer population. And, you know, uh, it seems like there's a, a lot of ingredients there in play to, to really create financial incentives to steer chronically ill, aged and post-acute uh, patients into the home care as well. So, Mark, I just wanted to get your take on, you know, the, what this shift to home-based care delivery uh, means, how that will impact the the senior living space. And, and also, you know, just I wanted to see if you could, I also wanted to ask you if there's an opportunity for both payers and providers to seize market share, you know, during this transition while also creating value along the way. So with the space that we're in, you know, senior living and skilled nursing,
0: there's, there's really some very different subsectors to this space and they're going to be impacted in different ways by what you just described. And so I think, you know, probably the, the clearest is if you look at kind of the post acute skilled space. So these are not people that are living in these buildings for a long period of time. These are people that are. Coming in post-hospitalization, post-surgery, or any number of other things where they're coming in and they're receiving skilled care for, you know, what could be a couple of weeks, you know, could be a month, could be much shorter, could be much longer. I think this kind of short-term transitory skilled care is gonna increasingly move to the home uh, or move out of a skilled nursing setting. And, and that's a that's a painful thing for the industry because that's historically been one of the you know primary profit drivers for skilled nursing, but I do think you're going to just, there's, you know, there's technology and all sorts of other things that will enable more of that uh, to go into the home. And it's, it's similar to what you described that the hospitals are, um, are experiencing as well. There will be continue there'll, there'll be more kind of healthcare that moves from the uh, moves from sort of facility to the home. Um, I would separate that a little bit from the long-term residential kind of hospitality um, service that senior living and, and nursing facilities provide. Um, while you will see certainly some of that move to the home as well, there's just so many people that are going to be aging into this demographic. Um, and so much, and like I said, changes in family structures and so forth, there's going to be, uh, a significant demand for those, you know, residential, uh, residential models in the future. And, and a, a few reasons for that. I mean, Number one is that in many senior living properties, you know, it's much more than just hospitality and and activities daily support activities daily living support. Um, many of these communities are you know, there's a massive amount of social and other things that occur in these in these communities that is quite desirable for a lot of uh, older adults. And so you have kind of that element with some of the some of the higher end independent living communities where um, it's, it's an attractive, you know, attractive place for people that are, um, you know, that are, that are looking for sort of a vibrant community to move into. And that's more independent living, not assisted memory care skill. But, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of those that are growing because people are attracted to that. And then as you get into, you know, assisted living, memory care, nursing facility, you know, when, when people say, Hey, well, will there be a big need for these in the future? Typically, what I recommend to people is if you haven't spent time in one of those buildings, spend time in one of the buildings. And, you know, I always invite people to to go with me to some of the buildings. And 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 the reason I say that is because a lot of the people that live in those settings, they need quite a bit of support. And it's not the type of support that can be provided by a room patient monitoring device or something of that nature. I mean, it's, they don't just need somebody to monitor them. They need people to use the restroom, to eat their food, to bathe, to really kind of go through day-to-day life. These are people that need a lot of support, and so, you know, unless if if they don't have that at home, um, there's going to be a big need. There's just there's just going to be a big need, and and senior living tends to be a good way to provide that that sort of day-to-day support that that people need. And again, I I think sometimes people overestimate the extent to which technology can uh provide solutions when what when what's in in many cases what people need really is is again just they need support with you know with with going through their day and so um and if it wasn't senior living you would you would need staff on site in their house unless they have family that is that is that is able to uh kind of provide that that round-the-clock support so Again, I mean, I I think of it kind of differently, the different subsectors. Of course, a lot's going to move to the home across the board, but it is a little bit different. The skilled real healthcare services, that's going to move to the home more and at a faster rate. The people that are there because of other reasons related to activities they living or whether they just like the social aspect of living there, I think that's a little bit of a different story. And And so that's a little bit of how I think about it. And and by the way, you know, in, in this space, this what you're bringing up. This is a topic that's discussed at almost every single conference. Is you know forecasts for uh, so what what's going to happen in the future? And so there's there's you know loads of publicly available forecasts about what's going to happen in each subsector of senior living and skilled nursing over the future. And so I, I would encourage people that that's all you can look stuff up. There's all sorts of different forecasts and opinions about how this will play out with with a lot of the trends that uh, you just mentioned, Eric. That there's ones that are tailwinds for the space and there's ones that are major headwinds for the space as well and so again there's probably people that, that could that could uh there's forecasts that that walk through a lot of this that maybe can cover it more eloquently than i did
1: Well, Mark, that that was a a great sharing of perspective, and I appreciate uh, you differentiating between skilled nursing and senior living facilities and, you know, what this trend for the shift to more home-based care means in the future. And, you know, to your point, there's uh, definitely a lot of headwinds and tailwinds, uh, you know, as we're trying to forecast and ultimately navigate uh, towards the future. And, you know, one tailwind in particular that's uh, uh, been talked about a lot lately is this uh, uh, aimed by uh, CMS to have every Medicare beneficiary in an ACO or an ACO-like model by 2030. It seems like CMS has thrown down the gauntlet there. They're very committed to this work, and certainly your company, Curana Health, is well-equipped to help providers make that transition to value-based care. I mean, for residents and senior living, you know, better care and better health means ensuring that those patients receive advanced care planning and regular wellness visits, and finding ways to prevent avoidable hospitalizations and emergency room visits. So Mark, as we wrap up our conversation today, I'd love to get your take on the future scale and impact of value-based care as it pertains to an ever-growing and often marginalized population of seniors in our country. You know, Looking at the numbers of aging Americans, uh, those age 65 and older is going to double over the next 40 years, reaching 80 million by 2040. And you know, if you look at the time span between 2000 and 2040, that would have that—that's a quadrupling, you know, of our senior population. So, uh, it, you know, just I, I'd love to get your parting thoughts on value-based care as a historic moment. You know, to bring seniors the dignity and quality of life that they deserve. Uh, could you share your thoughts on that?
0: I would say it's much more than seniors. I think as a country, we have to figure out a way to achieve better health outcomes without spending increasingly more money every single year. And again, not just senior care, but the overall American healthcare system. We've we've got to figure out better ways of working. I think it just it just has to be part of the solution to to achieve what we all want to achieve from a healthcare outcome standpoint, what without without bankrupting the country. So um, I you know I think this has to be part of the solution. And you know all the stats. Healthcare is a leading cause of personal bankruptcy in America. There's all the stats about a lack of affordability in American healthcare. We pay more for healthcare than other developed nations with similar outcomes. And so, yeah, I think I think value-based care across the board is something that we need to drive. And, you know, it feels like a lot of times it's two steps forward, one step back. You know, the American healthcare system is so incredibly complex across so many different dimensions that uh, change is difficult. Um, it's It's more difficult than I think most of us would like it to be. Um, I think a lot, a lot of times we say, "Hey, there's there's a great clinical model. We can we can deliver better outcomes if we if we do this. Everything else will fall into place." And it's never it's never quite that simple navigating the complexity of American healthcare. But but I do think it's just I think that is a tremendous opportunity that's in front of all of us. And and you know, like I said at the top of this uh, podcast, there's so many opportunities in value-based care across the American healthcare ecosystem. And I think what we need is we just need more people to say, look, this is an area I'm passionate about. I'm going to work with other really, really driven people. We're willing to do this for the long haul. We're willing to put in the time that it, that it takes to figure out this space and make things a little bit better. And I think that you know the beautiful thing right now is we've got people all over the country tackling different aspects of value-based care throughout American healthcare, just different aspects of uh, digital health. There's so many I think innovative companies in different parts of American healthcare. And hopefully if enough of us kind of keep chipping away at this, that, that we can, we really can get to a better, you know, a better model of healthcare on the back end where, where it's about the outcomes achieved and where physicians and other clinicians have a better work-life balance where patients have better outcomes and hopefully where things are more affordable. And so again, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic. I know there's a lot of great people all over the healthcare ecosystem doing great work. And, um, hopefully if, uh, enough of us keep doing this and, and if, if some of that group has, has some great success that hopefully it'll be a, it'll be a beautiful thing overall for the, you know, for the American healthcare system. And so, you know, my hope with, with Curana Health is that, you know, we're in sort of a unique subsector of American healthcare with, you know, sort of end of life and, and senior living and skilled nursing. And I hope that, that we're able to play, you know, some small part in the overall movement towards value-based care throughout American healthcare.
1: Well, Mark, that is well said. I mean, I I could not agree more in terms of the, of course, the daunting challenges ahead, but the sense of optimism that I have in terms of reimagining and redesigning the way that we deliver care in this country—it's uh, an economic and a moral imperative that we do that, and we have to have the right people pouring passion and love and in trying to really transform outcomes and create better quality of life for those that we serve. You're certainly doing that work. Uh, at Leading Corona Health, you've built an outstanding team and great capabilities. And it's been a, a pleasure showcasing that work and congratulations on all of your uh, uh, results. And I, I look forward to uh, staying connected and uh, seeing how the company progresses in the future. Uh, really appreciate you joining us on the podcast this week.
0: Eric, I, I do genuinely appreciate you giving me the opportunity because you've had some amazing people on there. And so it's, uh, I know you've had some people doing some Bigger stuff than me, a lot bigger stuff than me on your podcast. Now, I deeply appreciate the opportunity and great work that you're doing.